the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio, Stoneville, Mississippi. Tom's here with me. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well, man. So we have Daniel Stevenson from the LSU Ag Center on the phone with us again. How you doing, buddy? Doing very well. How about yourself? We're doing good. And I say again because like a week ago, we had Daniel on the phone and we recorded what the three of us thought was a great podcast. And then we threw it in the trash because the sound was terrible. Uh, if y'all would like to hear the content of the original conversation, which was really good, you'll have to call me or call Tom or call Daniel if you're in Louisiana. So uh, we're going to talk about some of the same topics today, but not in the same format that we did last week. Daniel, before we start, I know you've been up here several times and done meetings for for different folks, whether it was a short course or whether it was the uh, consultants meeting, but just give folks a a brief history on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Born and raised on a peanut, cotton, and cattle farm in southeast Alabama. Uh, earned my bachelor's and master's degree from Auburn University. Left there, went to the University of Arkansas for a Ph.D. Spent some time at the University of Florida and back to Arkansas up at Kaiser as a uh, systems agronomist, and then moved to Louisiana as a weed scientist in 2008. And now I'm the statewide extension specialist for weed control. I'm also the research coordinator at the Dingley Research Station. So you do a lot, is what you're saying? It's entertaining. Just Daniel left out the part about me and him going to school together in Arkansas, and, and then him and Tom going to school together in Auburn. We were there for a little bit of time together. I thought y'all shared an office or something. No, 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 no. I was in plant pathology. He was in he was in the other building, which I have to sit here and think a minute, was the plant soil sciences department or whatever it is. Which Funches. building? Funches Hall, that's right. Daniel and I went to school together in Fayetteville for I guess three or four years and, and we definitely shared an office, Tom, us and about twelve other people. So, Daniel, i got a question for you. Imagine you're a burglar, but you can only take things that cause people a minor inconvenience. What are you going to take? Probably paper towels, toilet paper, paper products, stuff like that. Not bad. Not bad. Toilet paper in high demand this time 12 months ago. I posed that question to my wife, Amanda, the other day, and she said, well, if I'm doing it to you, I'm taking your coffee pot. I was like, yeah, joke's on you. I'll just cook it on the stove. I don't know that that would be a minor inconvenience. For some, that would be a major inconvenience. I'll find a way around it. Oh, absolutely. Power outages in the Delta. I'll find out how to make some coffee. Cook them on the barbecue grill. That's right. Absolutely. I'm sure plenty of people have done that. All right, so Daniel picks paper products. What are you going with, Tom? Right now, hand soap. I bet you could replace, or hand sanitizer. We could hand get, sanitizer, absolutely. We could get you a couple dozen bottles pretty quick around here. I uh, bet some people would say mask. I no comment there. <laughs> I'm not an anti-masker. I'm just saying some people. Hmm. All you got out of time was a huh. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> hold comment. All right, Daniel, I mentioned you doing weed control. The things we wanted to touch on when we visited today 
were corn weed control, which we're right in the middle of now, and then no telling how many acres of soybeans have been planted this week, uh, at least for us, and I'm sure with with y'all too. So let's start on corn, and just give folks an idea what your uh, give folks your ideas on corn weed control, and we'll compare notes and uh, see where we get to on that. One of the biggest advantages that we have in Louisiana is we can plant early. And by early, I mean the first two weeks of March. And the main reason from a weed control standpoint that that's so advantageous is the fact that summer annual weeds emerged the first two weeks of April. So right now, really, and well, a week or so ago, two weeks ago. And normally, in a normal growing time, that's, coincides when our growers are putting out their side dress nitrogen. Corn is 8, 10, 12 inches tall, and any post-emergence herbicide application you apply works outstanding because the weeds are half an inch to an inch tall. Summer weeds, not the winter weeds. The winter weeds should be gone. You're evaluating some of the, the higher-priced treatments as compared to the old standards, which, I mean, you know, Esmetolachlor or atrazine glyphosate type treatments. Very rarely have I found that the more expensive treatments are offer you any benefit over some of the more um, moderately priced or cheaper treatments. So this year that was a little bit different though since we're going to focus on this year. Um, I had guys that uh, were unable to plant early um, they should be stopping. I've heard of some corn going in the ground earlier this week. So we're getting into phase now where instead of just a single application of herbicides, you may require two pre-followed by post, or which probably won't happen, so maybe a post application of something a little bit stronger, one of the, some of the more pricey ones. So that's where we are right now. One of the biggest things that we're running into, Jason and Tom, is... Due to the weather, certain areas of the state have not been able to get in and, and put out the post-emergence herbicide application, and they're encountering corn that's larger than the label allows. Um, you know, for example, Caprino, that's uh, V6. Um, some guys have got Johnson grass in control, which I know Johnson grass will be a subject here in a little bit. And they, this Caprino is no longer an option because the corn is too big. So there have been um, not hundreds, but there have been you know many calls of, of guys that when I talk to them I say, you know, dude, it's too late. It's too late for atrazine. You're too late. You know you're you know going with the drop nozzle. And some guys have moved to using drop nozzles. We have that situation every year too, on some scale. You know for whatever reason, weather or logistics just gets gets in the way and we, we don't get a field or a farm treated. Corn is the crop that we have a lot of options in. And so it seems, you know, when we sit down and talk about corn weed control, most of the time we're talking about a one-pass herbicide program. So compared with our other crops, we think that, man, that's really simple. But then case in point, the situation you just described where the weather lines up against you and you can't get across the field, it can go from seemingly really simple to really complicated in a hurry. Absolutely. Particularly if the weather's, um, you've had poor growing conditions for the corn, so the corn's just not growing off like it should, the, the risk of injury. 
is there, you know, you take metolachlor, the saponin, you know, whether it's a, a, a dual two or a basic dual magnum, most times the post-emergence application, you're pr- pretty well safe. You don't cause any buggy whipping. But in our current environment now, cool, wet soils, and I sprayed some corn this morning, and the soil temperature was 55 degrees. So though if it's wet, you could see a lot more herbicide injury from herbicides we typically don't injure corn with. So um, the, the, the environment has really put our growers in the state, not all of them, but a big chunk of them, and um, put them into a corner they're going to have to fight out of. And we've been really cool up here, too, for the last, what, Tom, a week? I'd say week, off and on, absolutely, you last know, it, week. It didn't even get to 60 here at Stoneville as a high yesterday, and naturally cool nights along with it. So I've seen some corn driving around this week that I know has been sprayed because you can see the tracks through the field. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily injured, but it's definitely not a deep green. And we haven't had a frost in the places that I've been running around. The temperatures on our latitude here at Stoneville haven't been low enough at night, but that corn just doesn't look really, really healthy like it could this time of year, you know, being what's today, the 22nd day of of April. And I think part of what is going on there is what you're describing, Daniel. You're getting a little bit of injury that you wouldn't ordinarily get under better growing conditions. Yeah, and and then you add in, too, and I'm not a a soil fertility guy, but I know that the risk of denitrification where these guys have actually side-dressed the nitrogen due to excessive rains, in a normal year, on April 22nd, most corn, and I'm not a very tall guy, but it would be up at least to my chest, you know, with the, at the lowest, my waist, because it had caught that nitrogen and it was moving. So that's one of the beauties of you know, down here when we plant, when we put out our post-emergence treatment the first couple of weeks of April, and the corn picks up the nitrogen, there's no weed going to catch that corn. It, it's gone. So really a concern from weed competition is over, but this year it's, it's really not. I haven't heard too many guys screaming that they've got weeds growing out their ears either. Uh, I think the weeds can be affected. Their growth can be affected as much as corn can. No doubt. Give folks an idea about the range of, I guess, normal planting dates for corn on your geography, Daniel. Normal planting dates uh, typically occur the first two weeks of March. That's when probably the, the bulk of the corn in a normal year will be planted in Louisiana. There will be some individuals who will try to plant the last week of February if the, if the weather um, holds out right, and there's a few brave souls who will try the middle of February. Typically, when you get into April, that's when acres start shifting away. Occasionally, if, a, you know, if an individual has already you know, had to use atrazine and has to replenish corn, they'll go back to that or maybe even grain sorghum if the prices are good. But uh, I'd say any corn planting stopped probably the first of this week. And I, I, would be, I was really shocked when they told me they were planting corn this late. Uh, so really the month of March, I'd say, but if you focused it down the first two weeks of March. Talk about planting date and how that relates to weed control then. Well, you and I have had a study years ago where we planted um, corn on you know the early end of that spectrum. When you know, Jason, your range really was is the entire month of March. Weather permitting, this year we had we definitely had some going in the first week of March, 
and then there was a little break for some weather, and then it picked back up, and then on into April, too. Yeah, I would say on into April, and, and that I'd make that statement just because driving east to west yesterday, and I said something about it on Twitter, and I did not grow stage the corn, but I would say the most advanced corn I ran across yesterday was V6, and corn right now is probably spiking to V6 throughout yeah. Delta to East Mississippi, and that's obviously just variable planting dates there that encompass the March and April dates for right. sure. What, you, what we were just talking about right there is there was that range, as Tom said, from spike into V6. That fits in pretty well to what I'm about to, to tell you that Jason and my data showed from years ago, that when we planted on the front end, or say early, not February plant, say the 1st of March, and then we planted the middle of March, and then we planted, you know, sometime out in April, you know, and I can't remember exactly, maybe three weeks apart on that planting date. What we found is that when you planted on the early end to kind of the, the middle of the range, it didn't really matter when you put out your, your residual herbicide, so atrazine was one that we were using, so non-selective and atrazine whether it was a pre-emerge treatment or whether it was a, say, a V4, four-collar, which is typically 12 inches in normal growing corn. But as you delayed your planting date, the data showed that you needed that residual on the front end to protect that corn plant because it was summer annual weeds were emerging with it. So how I have kind of used that in education for our growers, that if you're planting the first two weeks of March, it does not matter when you put your herbicide out, whether it's a pre behind the planter, which some guys do, they put everything out behind the planter, or they wait to see if they have a stand and use a post-emergence application. Either way, they're catching the weeds, small, either you know, the herbicide is laying out there on the soil and, and killing them when they come up in April, or the post-emergence application takes them out. If you delay it though, and many weeds are emerging with that corn, um, then you can have yield reduction because the corn plant, as it's spiking, it's already beginning to determine its yield, and it'll it orients its leaves perpendicular to the row. So if you got a, if you just look away from you, just think of the corn plant, stick your arms out to your side. That's how it's a bunch of individual corn plants. If there's a weed there interfering with that spiking corn plant. It'll actually orient its leaves away from it. And if it's bad enough, then you can have multiple plants orienting. Then you have leaves overlapping. They're competing for sunlight. You had a, potentially could decrease your yield right there. So that's why it's so important, A, to have all winter annual weeds out of the way when you plant corn on the front end. Because um, this could happen even the March 1 planting date if it's fully, if the field's full of hen bit or something like that. And if you don't plant until the end of March or into April, you can have it from summer annual weeds. So teaweed, morning glories, circle pod, pigweed, barnyard grass. Given the calendar date right now, what important weeds are y'all running across from a management standpoint in Louisiana right now? Right now, pigweeds are the ones that are exploding. Johnson grass has been exploding. Nuts edge because they're so wet. So of the phone calls that I'm getting, that's typically the weed, that's one of the weeds that's mentioned to me, whether it's the a pigweed, most likely palmer, um, a nut sedge, typically yellow, or um, and then Johnson grass, of course, is King Johnson grass. So 
we documented Johnson grass as being resistant to glyphosate in, in 2010, and um, it's it's a bear to, to take out a corn. And I actually had a spot here on the research station where I'm on domicile that Johnson grass was so such at a high density I could have cut it for hay. Put in some some studies looking out for Johnson grass control in corn and found some some good options and. I'm not always one just to point at a particular product and sing its praises, but from a glyphosate-resistant Johnson grass control, Corvus um, Pre or Caprino Post, those those two products. Now, I'm not saying that Nicosulfuron won't offer you some control. You know, there's some other products out there, but as far as just a, a hammer on Johnson grass, uh, Corvus and Caprino are the way to go and so we had lots of growers for after 2010 11 12 so on and so forth that would buy these particular products and they'd spot spray them because obviously it's rise on johnson grass it's not growing everywhere it's in hot spots so they'd go in and spot spray the johnson grass with excellent results to the point that central louisiana not many people are, are talking or, and are stressed about glyphosate-resistant Johnson grass. However, this year I've gotten more phone calls coming out of the Delta parishes, you know, toward the Mississippi River and then on up toward you guys to where a lot more issues with Johnson grass control. And we have it too. You know, our our problem started, I would say, Cahoma County, so the greater Clarksdale area, mainly east and south a little ways. And, but now I get calls far south as Yazoo City and and all points in between, too. So I, I think we have a growing problem with it. And I've used your corn recommendation over and over again because I don't I – don't, well, one, I don't think there is a better recommendation. But then, two, I haven't had the luxury of working on it and the experience with it that you have. So I guess take Johnson grass and make a leap – to our other crops, Daniel, and tell us about Johnson grass control. Just take soybeans because that's the, the crop that's really growing it, going in the ground right now and folks are thinking about. It's either graminicide, namely clethodium, um, potentially a sure that, or um, I've got some data for I have a student of mine, Randall Landry, his thesis was looking at Liberty, uh, glufosinate for control of the Johnson grass. And surprisingly, Liberty has got some pretty decent efficacy. Now, it's not going to kill it. You're just simply frying it back, and it's going to take two to potentially three applications um, to keep it down full season. But the combination of that, along with the graminicide, it takes some pressure off of the graminicide because we don't want to ride that horse. You know, kind of like we rode, ridden that horse with the Italian ryegrass, and now Clethodem is losing its efficacy, as we all know. So... Um, you can get, you know, Trifland, obviously, but, I mean, look, we're, we're, since Louisiana, northeast, northwest Louisiana, we, we farm just like the guys do in the Delta of Mississippi and or Arkansas. Nobody's going to put out Trifland. You know, to right. dip in the bed, you can't can't get good coverage. So, Prowl, nah, from residual, is not very good on residual. It'll get, it, I mean, not residual, but uh, rhizome. It'll get seedlings, but we're talking about rhizome, things that, you know, big as my pinky. So, really, we're fighting the post-emergence, and 
it's, it's relative, it's extremely difficult, and you don't have many options. You know, Thales inhibitors will make it sick a little bit, but it doesn't kill it. So it's, it's not like pigweed. Pigweed is a terror because it could just be there's so many of them, it gets so big so fast. But we've got a lot of tools if done right. We don't really have that with Johnson grass. That's a fact. There's no telling how many acres get treated with clethodim in Mississippi between the ryegrass problem in the spring, general annual grass problems in extend crops, and in list crops, just the, the newer technologies, and then for Johnson grass. I mean, it's a lot of clethodim applied in our state, too. So I think the door is opening back up for some Liberty applications as ExtendFlex comes online and, and gains more of a market share, probably not this year, maybe next year. But I do think that'll offer some opportunities to at least beat some of these things down and hopefully keep them under control and, like you mentioned, take the pressure off some of those other modes of action. If Louisiana were to have a, a Johnson grass population that was resistant to glyphosate as well as the ACCase inhibitors, so the graminicides, clepidium, uh, really, <laughs> we're at a loss, you know, because not many people want to use glufosinate or they have extended soybeans, so they can't use glufosinate. Um, not a whole bunch of enlist E3s planted in Louisiana. So, really, people have to get to know their, their hoe, is my advice, if they've got it. Because that's the thing about Johnson grass. It's not going to be an entire field. I mean, it's just going to be clumps of it. Now, if you allow that to propagate and live, and then you take and plow it, and you cut the rhizomes up, and you drag it across your field, sure, it, it multiplies that way. But it's just, like, it's just like any other weed that you spray. If it doesn't die, go pull it. Get rid of it. Yeah, and you take a shovel of the Johnson grass and dig it up and then burn it. That's the best thing that you can do. How do we maintain the efficacy of some of these fungus? Or, I'm sorry. Dude, this is a conversation about weed control. I, yes, I know. Herbicide. Correct. That's the direction my brain was going, but my mouth overshot that mark. So let me rephrase. How do we maintain the efficacy of some of these herbicides into the future, knowing that we probably have some glufosinate-resistant pigweed in parts of Arkansas? How do we maintain the efficacy of that particular active ingredient, knowing that moving forward? Rotation of crops and herbicides, but not just herbicides. There's other methods of of um, weed control, mechanical, um, cultural, so uh, and then as well as chemical, what I just mentioned. We're going to have to go back and, and to Weed Science 101, all right? Weed Science 101 is not just spraying Roundup or not just spraying Liberty or relying only on Valor Pre followed by Roundup plus Dicamba to, to control our, our pigweeds. Um, and then doing that every year, because that, that's, that's what's happened, Tom, in my opinion. Look, resistance is out there. It, it, it doesn't evolve. It's, it's at a low frequency in a population. And when you only apply one mode of action over and over and over and over, year after year, crop after crop, you take out all the individuals that are going to die, and those individuals who can tolerate 
the, the herbicide or, or resistant to the herbicide, their frequency increases. So you've got to rotate crops. You've got to be willing to use tillage. You've got to be um, willing to rotate herbicide modes of action. You've got to be willing to practice good sanitation, cleaning off your equipment. You take Johnson grass, for example. A set of hippers goes through in the fall, getting your beds up. You know Johnson grass is in the field. Ex in inspect your hippers to make sure that you don't have rhizomes on those hippers before you go to the field and, and infest another one. Um, be willing to walk the field and pull weeds if you see an escape. That's, it's got to be that in total, really, to, to protect these crops. And it's, it's, contra it's really hard for a guy who's, or a girl who's farming multiple thousands of acres to, to do that. So I'm not walking in their shoes. And so it may be easy for me to talk about you've got to walk your acres and pull your weeds. But if you're asking me how to protect these modes of action for the long term, that's what it's going to have to be. I agree. It's just not that simple. It's simple to talk about, and it's not as simple to execute all the things that factor into it, like Daniel described, farm size, farm arrangement, a lot of moving parts to it that conspire to force a guy force his hand to doing what is fast and seemingly simple. Economics, of course, factors into it. So it's just, it gets so complicated. And I think everybody acknowledges the right things to do. And then the execution of it is where we end up with problems. They all end up peeling off like an onion. Yeah, and, and now it's out of necessity, man. Implementing any long-term program like that is not easy, especially when you're talking about sitting it down on a you know pencil and paper to come and break that down is not such an easy way to approach that sometimes, especially when you're talking about things like weed control. Daniel, we certainly appreciate you taking time out of your day to get on here with us and, of course, apologize for the laundry list of technical problems that we have so we, we want to be respectful of your time but before you go i want to hear what you have to say about nut sedge control you mentioned it in the intro the things that you said about it definitely apply here we've got a it's a big nut sedge year for us too so before we go just give us your thoughts on that if you're in corn nut sedge problem halo sulfuron is is your best choice at an ounce uh, permit that's what i would do if i was a farmer you know, yes, glyphosate does have activity, but it typically takes two applications really to do, to, to have a good time and control nut sedge. Going into soybeans, uh, aforementioned glyphosate, from a residual standpoint, it's really hard to, to beat uh, products that contain chlorumuron. You take canopy, for example. Um, Dual Magnum offers good residual control, so the, co the combination of a, of a canopy six four to six ounces, depending on your soil pH, plus a, a pint of an or such as dual magnum, offers you really good activity on, on nut sedge. And that, that's probably if a guy called me and said, hey, you know, this is my problem and I'm planting beans, that's going to be the, the herbicide program I'm going to suggest. The products that contain sulfentrazone, so all the authority products, I think there's Sonic and then the Broadax, you know, for so broad acts or authority elite. So, so Fincher's own estimate, total core. Good choice. 
good choice there because sulfamentrazone offers you some residual control. Then you have this metolacor helping you along as well. From a post-emergent standpoint, sulfonylureas have a little bit of activity, um, but they need to be mixed with glufosinate, uh, not glufosinate, glyphosate. And then if you hold your mouth right, sometimes Liberty does pretty decently, but uh, you got to hold your mouth right. Man, you better hold it real right, and the weather better be right along with it. It needs to be about 95 degrees and 100% humidity, and you get super-duper coverage, and you, you won the lottery. What's your thoughts on prefix as a residual for nut sedge? I know you got some experience with that back down the line. Surprising 